definitely get with a real estate investing networking group. If there's not one in your area or there's not one that you like, start your own. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about the pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E you're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff with us today. Nate Shields, how you doing, Nate? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure, and I'm glad that you're good. And a little bit about Nate. He's the co-founder of School Dispatch. He has been investing for about four years. His portfolio consists of 28 units in three states. He's also flipped six properties based in Madison, Wisconsin, and he's got a YouTube channel called Dude Real Estate. So with that being said, Nate, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I come from a marketing background, but as the previous recession hit, I was looking to do something a little bit different, something a little more entrepreneurial, and I wanted to get into real estate. So I started off as an agent in 2013. And after a couple of years, I got the investing bug and started educating myself and joined up with my buddy. We're still 50-50 partners on all of our rental properties. So we just kind of slowly 
climbed that ladder and still are climbing that ladder. So as you said, we've got 28 units in three states now. So the, the last recession, depending on where you lived, was 08, 09 time frame. You said you were an agent in 2013. So what were you doing between 09 and 2013? I was doing marketing for a law enforcement training company, and we were affected by the recession just like everyone else. So my hours got cut, my pay got cut, benefits got cut, and I was just looking for something else yep. that I could support our family with and something that I was a little more passionate about too. So I really always thought real estate was a great avenue and I wanted to start in the sales side, both to get me out of my job, but potentially to help me understand the process of buying rental properties. I had just always had this dream of owning 10 or 20 properties. It just made sense that you put a renter in, they pay your expenses on it, and then you get cash flow on top of that. So it just made sense in my head. And that's why I think a lot of people gravitate toward that because it's very easy to understand. Mm -hmm. You and your partner, what's your partner's first name? Troy. Okay. You and Troy have 28 units in three states. What are the three states? Illinois, South Carolina, and Alabama. Well, I would have guessed Wisconsin was one of those three. Okay, good. <laughs> Don't make a curveball this early in the conversation. I like it. All right. Illinois, South Carolina, and Alabama. Those are the three states. Where was your first property? We were both in the Chicago area when we started. So that's why we had okay. Illinois on the list. So we bought our first few properties there. Then my partner, Troy, he moved to South Carolina and he sourced a duplex there. And then we were just kind of looking for something a little larger. So we found a 20 unit building in Alabama. And then our property managers just brought us another four unit building down there as well. Okay. Well, South Carolina, Alabama, Closer than Wisconsin, Alabama. So now it's making more sense. How did you learn about the 20 unit in Alabama? And where in Alabama is it? Yeah, it's about an hour outside of Huntsville. And Troy, he found it on LoopNet, which is where a lot of people say deals go to die, but you can still find some stuff on there. And the thing that caught his attention was actually the numbers just looked awful. Like, almost too bad. <laughs> and so he dug a little bit deeper. And once we looked at the rent rolls and the tax returns and all that stuff, we're like, oh, no, the numbers are wrong on the loop net side. We like this deal. And it ended up being a really good deal for us. Can you think of a specific example of a number that was way off? The revenue based on what we knew the rents were, I think the rents were roughly, and this is very kind of yeah. low end, but it was like 350, 375 for the units in a 20 unit building and kind of do the math and figure out what the, what, what the revenue should be. But it looked almost half that. So we just knew right away that there was something else going on. Either they're not telling us something or it's mismarketed. It was just mismarketed? Yep. <laughs> Great. I'm glad we're talking about this. So it was mismarketed. Was it listed by a broker or was it direct from the seller? It was listed by a broker and she had some experience. She owned some properties herself, but she wasn't a commercial broker. So I don't know if she knew exactly how to market technically a commercial property correctly. She was a little bit older. The sellers were also a little bit older. They were pretty motivated because they needed to 1031 into a property in California for personal reasons. And so they were pretty motivated to sell. It was listed at 575. We got it for 475 and it immediately appraised it. 573. Okay. Got it. So despite them listing it 
incorrectly, they had about the right valuation. Yeah, I think they were close and they were able to get a quick sale out of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how'd you buy it? All cash with financing? Financing. In, in a sense, it was almost 100% financing without having the seller finance a part of it because we had a line of credit from our lender already. So essentially we used the lender to underwrite it, but then we were also able to use our line of credit as the down payment. Will you elaborate on what type of lender that is? It was a commercial lender that we pretty much worked with from the beginning. So when we first started with them, we brought some capital to the table, but we needed a little more to get started. So what they did for us was they essentially held our funds as collateral and gave us a multiplier on our money for a line of credit. So that's how we kind of started. And we kind of used the Burr method on the first couple of properties and then got an extension on that line. And what we were able to use that for essentially 100% financing on that apartment building. Oh, that's great. And was that lender one that you two came in contact with in Chicago? So they're local yes. to Chicago? Yeah. Troy had already had some dealings with them on some other stuff. So when we talked with him initially, it just made sense for us to continue working with them because they gave us some good terms. So it's just a local community bank or credit union to Correct. Chicago? Okay. Yep. Huh. And they were comfortable lending the line of credit, which I guess if it's line of credit, then you can do whatever you want with it. It's my guess, but yep. <laughs> pretty okay. much. you can do whatever you want. Okay. Fair enough. So just so I'm clear, you bought it with the line of credit and then did you put a loan on it after that? Yes. And what are the terms on the loan? I believe, uh, high level. Yeah. Probably looking at like, it was a 20 year amortization mm -hmm. and probably around 5%, something like that. High level there. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. You slept since then. So you and Troy were going along, picking off singles, and then all of a sudden, bam, a 20 unit. <laughs> That's a gigantic step. Maybe a 20 times multiplier of what you were doing. What did you do to prepare for the purchase of a 20 unit when you've been doing single family? So he had a little bit of experience in the commercial space. So that combined with our experience and my experience as a realtor, we did have to educate ourselves a little bit, but at the end of the day, it's just kind of some bigger numbers and we're pretty good at running those numbers. So we were looking for a deal just in any decent metro market, pretty much anywhere in the country. So we were kind of looking all over for about six months and then we landed on this one. So our biggest concern was not the deal itself is more finding out more about the yeah management, the demographics of the area. So once we got it under contract, we popped down there, took a look at the building, which was not a surprise at all to us. We knew it was a C-class property and really just wanted to meet the property manager. So the property manager had been managing that building for 10 years and we felt very comfortable with him. So we kept him on and he's been great ever since. And he brought us this four unit that we just closed on last month. Does the property manager manage other properties? He does. Okay. So it's a third-party management company. It's not a resident who lives there. Correct. What does the property manager charge to manage this 20 unit? 8%. Anything else? Nope. Just flat 8%. Okay. What was the business model for this 20 unit purchase? What do you mean by that? Are you doing a value-add play where you're renovating the interiors or are you just... You bought it, you're sitting tight, you're renting them out, you're making them rent ready, but you're not increasing the rent. 
Right. So we saw immediately the rents were artificially low. The last owner didn't really ever raise them. So we saw an immediate opportunity to get those up to market as we had turnover. So like I said, they were 350 to 375 per door and we've been raising those up to 425 to 450. No problem. Without any major improvements to it. Correct. We did some exterior improvements, very minimal, some landscaping, power washing, stuff like that. The interior, we're actually going to start experimenting as we turn over a couple more units to maybe spend three to 4,000 and freshen them up with some new flooring, new lighting, new vanities, stuff like that, and see if we can even push to say 475 or 500. And did you bring money and put it in the bank account for that CapEx work? Or would that be out of pocket to try and test that business plan? Yeah, we don't take any income from our portfolio. It's a long-term portfolio for us. So everything that we make in cash flow from all of our properties goes back into either capital improvements or funding our next purchase. At what point will you two decide, we'd like to have some money from these properties now? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, Initially, our first goal when we first sat down to brainstorm was 10 years, 100 doors. And at that point, maybe we'll reconsider where we're at. But I think it's just every year or two, we just kind of look at what we got, look at where we want to go. Certainly at some point we will, we're both about 40. So once we hit that 50 mark, I think for sure, we'll want to start taking some cash off the table. What's a lesson that you've learned based on it not working out and then you've course corrected? One of the properties we failed with due diligence. So (laughs) both us and our attorney, it was a duplex and we thought it was zoned for that. And we never actually checked because we just assumed that it was a duplex, right? (laughs) It was a duplex. There were two units and there were other multi-unit properties on that same block And I never actually checked the zoning. And what we ended up having to do is deconverting to a single family. Dang. When did you find out about having to convert to a single family? We bought that one all cash and we wanted to refinance out of it once we got it stabilized. So we did some work to the upper unit since that one was vacant. And then when the appraiser came, he said, I can't appraise this because... It's technically not what it is. <laughs> and so when we found that out, we had two choices. We could leave it as is, but all of our cash would have been stuck there. And we really wanted to refinance out of it. So luckily the downstairs tenants were about to move out and that place needed a little freshening up too. We took a brand new kitchen that we had just put in the top unit and we actually were able to save the cabinets and the appliances and put them into the unit downstairs and freshen that kitchen up. And then we just had to cut some stairs in, do some painting, a couple other little things, but it probably cost us about $10,000 to do that. And time, of course, too. So Mm -hmm. the lesson wasn't as expensive as it could have been. It used to be a kitchen upstairs. What is it now? It's really just like a landing area. So the stairs were cut up right through the kitchen. Okay. (laughs) And it's just kind of a little landing area before you get into the living room up there. How did the valuation and cash flow get impacted? The cash flow definitely got hurt. We were expecting probably sixteen hundred a month in rents, and that dropped us down to about thirteen fifty. Valuation was probably roughly the same, um, and it became such a problem property for us anyway. We ended up selling that a few months ago. Oh yeah, all right. What'd you buy it for? We bought that for seventy two thousand, 
and we put roughly 22,000 into it. We sold mm-hmm. it for 125 or something like that. It wasn't a great market. That was part of the reason we were getting out of it. Well, you made 10 to $20,000 on it. Right. After all that hassle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's surrounded by duplexes. Was it just like sandwiched in between duplexes? Well, there were single families, but yeah, there are also some duplexes and fourplexes on the same street. So oh, man. It, yeah. What'd your attorney say whenever you asked him or her about he it said afterwards? He, yeah. He said he made a mistake. He should have checked that too. And he didn't. So oh. he's a good guy. He was honest. Yeah. Well, I, I respect that. I respect when people own up to that stuff. Well, that was something that is certainly valuable for a lot of best ever listeners. What deal have you made the most money on? Boy, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it is the 20 unit building because on paper we made $98,000 at closing and right. it's just, it's just been a really great cash flow property. And as we in, increase our NOI and cap rates at the moment are still decent. So the value has gone up. So I think we'll hold that one for a fair amount of time. We'll either refinance in the next year or two here, potentially sell it. We've had a couple unsolicited offers, but it's just a really great property for us. And I think I heard you say that that property manager has since referred another property to you two, a four unit. So you got the 20 unit, you got a bite of the apple, but then you went down to a four unit do you have any baseline for the amount of units per transaction that you're buying? Are you just accumulating? Doesn't matter if it's one, two, four, twenty. Doesn't matter. I think we'd like to move still bigger. That four unit was just really nice because it was one town over. Our property manager had already managed that property as well. He brought it to us. We got a good deal on it. We kind of like that area, and we have boots on the ground there, so it kind of makes sense to continue buying. I don't think we'd go smaller than a four unit at this point, and we actually talked about getting into more commercial stuff, whether it's self-storage or potentially more like a double or triple net lease, things of that nature. How long did you own that duplex that turned into a oneplex? (laughs) Let's see, about three years. Okay. So you made 20 plus thousand dollars on that and ultimately it was a single family house. So why not buy single family homes and then do a quicker turnaround and then use that to pump money into larger stuff. I think we just don't like single family homes at this stage of the game. What don't you like about them? I think the biggest thing for me is just that they're comp based. We'd rather go in and be able to add value and have a true commercial asset instead of rely on comparable properties. Right. You have more control over the operations and the business plan direction. And Okay. I get that. What has been something that you're most proud of since forming this partnership with Troy and buying these properties? I think it's our ability to maintain a partnership. (laughs) A lot of people kind of get two sides of the coin where people do a lot of partnerships or they're really scared to do partnerships. And the people that are scared probably got burned at some point. And we both have our stories too of bad partnerships. So we kind of understand what makes a good partnership, what makes a bad partnership. And we both had to essentially get out of bad partnerships along the way. One for him was a business partnership. One for me was another real estate partnership. And sometimes you just got to understand that your goals aren't aligned, your values aren't aligned. And we're lucky that our goals and our values and our time horizons are all aligned pretty perfectly. Mm -hmm. Goals, values, and time horizons. I think values is pretty self-evident and 
what you're talking about there. But as far as goals and time horizons, will you elaborate more? Sure. So when he had his partnership that kind of went south, his partner was 20 years older than him. So Troy's long-term goals were really the other guy's short-term goals. So it just didn't really line up because he was trying to do things that made things more immediate and Troy was thinking more long-term. So eventually they had to dissolve that partnership. And then as far as goals go, it's just, we have a goal to buy a bunch of real estate and there's a lot of different asset classes to choose from. And it's just kind of like a side retirement vehicle for us. And honestly, it doesn't take that much time. We spend a couple hours a week on it. Maybe it gets a little more intense if there's a buy or a sell, but it's not that hard to do. I think a lot of people think it's a lot of hard work and I suppose it could be, especially if you're doing all the painting and landscaping and (laughs) managing Mm -hmm. everything, but we try to outsource as much of that as possible. What's been a challenging conversation that you've had with Troy over the years that you two resolve that, hey, if you didn't have as strong of a partnership as you do, it might not have been resolved. You might have parted ways. I think the biggest ones are probably buy or sell decisions. So I was putting a little bit of pressure on him to sell our Illinois properties and we did sell that one. So there are times where we just have more intense conversations. They're always friendly because we want the best thing for the business and the best thing for us. So I really can't think of any really intense conversations that we've had. One of the other things I forgot to mention was when it comes to partnerships, personalities matter too, because if you can't get along with someone Mm -hmm. and understand how they operate, we've been friends for 20 years. So we know each other really well. (laughs) So, So that's another thing too. We just get along. And when it does come down to it, We have the best interests of each other in mind and the business. Four things in partnerships, goals, values, time horizons, and personalities to make sure we get along. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of other listeners who are thinking about partnerships or in one and just kind of assessing each of those boxes appreciates that too. Taking a step back, based on your experience as a real estate investor, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I think the best advice I can give is definitely get with a real estate investing networking group. If there's not one in your area or there's not one that you like, start your own. That's what I did back in Illinois. It's a great way to meet people with different skill sets and you can end up partnering with people on deals. Our group here in Madison is very collaborative people lending to each other or bringing deals or it's a great group of people to be associated with. So definitely hook up with a real estate investing group. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go. First quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Are you looking for a hard money loan or do you have a mortgage note that you want to sell? Then email David at hasslefreecashflowinvesting.com. If you recognize this company, well, that's because David was a best ever guest on the show is episode 122, David Campbell. And you can email him at david at hasslefreecashflowinvesting.com if you're looking for a hard money loan or if you have a mortgage note to sell.
What's the best ever book you've recently read? If I can mention two, there's one called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. It's more about the startup culture, but the way I kind of process it as looking from getting from owning nothing to getting that first property is a super important step. And that's what I kind of like to make sure that people know, especially when they're starting out, that if you can get that first deal, it's pretty much all downhill from there because that's the biggest hurdle. Mm-hmm. You said two? You said two. Oh yeah, I do have another book, Built to Sell, which is more of a business book, but it really helps you think about your business as, is it an asset that someone else would come along and actually want to buy? And for a lot of real estate investors, I don't think that's necessarily the case because they might not have an attractive real estate business. So just be thinking about systems you can put in place, how to make your assets more desirable to someone who might want to buy them in the future. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? As far as giving back, especially to the real estate community, I do have my YouTube channel. I just offer advice and tips and hopefully people can learn from my failures as I shared one of them. I have many more, but you can also (laughs) see those on my channel. I also offer on my website, dudrealestate.com. You can click a link there to just get a free phone call with me. So especially if you're new, I think I add a lot of value just to helping people figure out what it is, the next thing that they have to do to kind of get to that first property, whatever that hurdle might be. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? There's a couple of ways they can go to Dude Real Estate channel on YouTube. They can also find me on Bigger Pockets. I'm a blogger for Bigger Pockets, so you can find my articles there. That's another way I give back. But just look me up, Nate Shields on Bigger Pockets. Nate, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for talking about the 20 unit. Thanks for talking about four things to look for in partnerships which is goals, values, time horizons, and making sure personalities align and some lessons learned on the deals and partnerships that have helped you get to where you're at and also some lessons learned, things that you wouldn't necessarily do again or you look out for. So appreciate you being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it.